Are you waiting for everything to be perfect before you decide to enjoy life? Stop waiting. Start living. Welcome to Life in 22 Minutes with Scott and Becky McIntosh, where you will hear inspiring stories from imperfect people living life with courage, humor, and a whole lot of love, despite challenging circumstances to bring hope to your heart and a smile to your face in only 22 minutes. Now, let's welcome the host of the show, Scott and Becky McIntosh. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Life in 22 Minutes. I am a co-host, Scott McIntosh, along with my wife, Becky. And today we are going to introduce you to the amazing Jason Coombs. Hello, Jason. Hey, guys. <laughs> Glad to be here. So let me uh, just give a little bit about uh, Jason. Uh, Jason Coombs is the CEO and founder of Brick House Recovery and the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Unhooked, How to Help an Addict Loved One Recover. Jason earned his bachelor's degree at the University of Utah and went on to achieve his master's in professional communications. He has operational experience in business ownership, strategic planning, management, sales, finance, advertising, marketing, human resources, and personal development. Jason has a natural ability to grow business in remarkable ways. For those who know Jason, you know that he has a heart for helping people. You would never know if you were to meet him on the street that Jason Coombs was once in the throes of a horrendous addiction that left him homeless, penniless, incarcerated, and near death. He found his purpose by way of his long inner struggle and transcendence from the ashes. So, welcome, Jason. Sorry for butchering some of those words. That, uh, <laughs> You're good. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're going to talk a little bit today about how everybody can have their own hot dog stand. How's that? <laughs> I love it. I love it. That actually speaks near and dear to my heart. It does. It does. And, and you will soon find out as we talk to Jason about a little bit of his journey. Uh, we're going to try to capture all this in our short 22 minutes that we have and sometimes longer. So we know that the rate of addiction is just rising and rising and rising. And you were part of that statistic at one time. And now you're you're giving back. Just kind of, you know, share what you want to, of your story and journey and what you're doing. Yeah, I am, am really grateful to be on here. This is actually my first podcast. So to be right. real vulnerable, um, oh. I hope that I live up to the expectations of your listeners. But what a great um, topic and what a great experience to um, simply provide some hopeful guidance in the context of my story, but particularly to the listeners that have addicted loved ones. Um, Because I know for my parents and my ex-wife and those that watched my life crumble due to chemical dependency, you know, it was really hard for them to know how to help. And they tried in a lot of different ways and uh, in some ways perpetuated the problem. And I think that, well, I don't think that. I see that all the time in my own treatment center. And uh, families are doing their best. But um, my hope is to simply help guide and let them know what helps and what doesn't help. Um, Hopefully shorten the the timeline before their addicted loved one gets ready. So, yeah, my purpose, as you kind of brought up a little bit earlier, was discovered at a hot dog stand. (laughs) <laughs> I'll just kind of get, kind of tell you how that played out, but you know, I'm a person in long-term recovery, as, as it was mentioned, and I suffered for uh, many years. I think it was about uh, six to 
seven, you know, solid years where I was deep and dark into opiate addiction and how that all happened is a whole nother story in and of itself. But, um, uh, when I got sober in, on March 19th of 2009, so in a, about a month, I'll, I'll reach nine years of sobriety. I was struggling to find what I was going to do with my life. And, and I think that this is a very common problem with people in early recovery is we look at our past and our failures and we identify with them. And, uh, it's really hard to transcend that mindset. And, um, for me, uh, the real aha moment and the shift happened while I was selling hot dogs out in front of a home depot. And, um, you know, I was making six bucks an hour. And at that time, that was a, a real gift and a blessing because I had squandered so many job opportunities for so many years. And my financial situation was totally upside down. I owed a lot of money and borrowing money from the people I loved. That was out of the question because I had already wronged them enough and they had set up effective boundaries by that time. And so I was grateful to be there behind the hot dog stand in the summer sun, um, selling hot dogs for six bucks an hour as a college graduate in my thirties. Um, yet I was humiliated, but I made a decision one day where, uh, I, I decided that I would kind of play a game and see how many people I could get to smile. And, um, a customer came up to the hot dog stand and he asked how my day was. And, uh, said, I'm going to make this guy smile. And so I said, Oh, my day, my day is great. I'm 72 days sober off crack cocaine and heroin. How's your day? <laughs> and he kind of looked at me and I didn't get the smile that I was looking for. It was kind of like TMI dude. Like, I was just being was on the ground and his eyes were wide open. And yeah, yeah. You, it's hard to smile when your jaw's on the floor. Well, and another <laughs> nuance of people in early sobriety is we tend to overshare. You know, we make people uncomfortable with the <laughs> stuff that rolls out of our mouth because we don't have that gauge yet. Um, our brains are still healing, and that's a very real condition, mm-hmm. I've found. Um, but at that time, it served as a blessing because he um, asked me a little bit more about that, and we got into a discussion and a conversation, and... His daughter at the time was struggling with chemical dependency and he didn't know where to turn and he started to ask me questions. And we probably had an hour long chat next to that hot dog stand. And uh, I just shared everything that my parents did that helped. I shared with him things that my parents tried that didn't help and that I took advantage of. And um, in a long winded way, I provided him some value that he was in tears by the end of our conversation and multiple times throughout the conversation because mm-hmm. it was a pain point for him. And um, when that conversation ended and he thanked me, he actually gave me a hug, um, I felt for the first time like I had something to offer. I mm-hmm. felt useful. I felt purpose. I felt like it was this aha moment that God opened up for me to recognize that everything that I had been through, all the pain and the suffering and the suffering of my parents and the struggles that they went through and my ex-wife and all of these people, it wasn't all a waste. It wasn't. It was actually a very sacred experience for me to step into an empathetic space where I could communicate 
with another man about his child and share tears with him and to guide him. And from that moment, um, I launched into a full court press of what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to help people with addiction, which is what I do as my profession with the treatment center. But really where my soft spot is, is helping the fathers and helping the mothers and helping the spouses and helping the siblings and the grandparents and the close friends that are really up against the wall trying to figure it out. And they don't know what works and they don't know the inside nuances of the addict mind and how we can process things and how we manipulate and how we draw upon our mother's fears to get what we want. And so um, that's a long, long explanation of why the hot dog stand ties in. <laughs> to, <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I, I got to find out. Did he smile though? I know he cried. He did. did he smile? He yeah. did. We, we did share some laughs because um, my story is, has some really funny parts yeah. to it. Like, like one of <laughs> one of the times I was trying to get sober, I thought that if I just bought a cat or rescued a cat, <laughs> then I would be able to stay sober because, hey, somebody's got to take care of that cat. Something and, would be dependent on you. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can't go to jail because then nobody would take care of the cat. So this will right. keep me sober. And, you right. know, I went to great lengths and I bought, you know, the cat bowl and I bought the wow. cat food and I bought the mat and I... I even didn't tell my landlord about it because I figured, you know, I'm going to get evicted if he finds out I have a cat, but this cat's going to keep me sober. So there are some funny (laughs) things that goes on in the crazy mind of someone who's addicted. But I I think we need to point out that you were very successful um, prior to this. You weren't a young kid or teen that was struggling to find hope in life and, and searched for it in drugs, that you were successful. You had a sales company you were working for and you were doing well, had a marriage and then uh, kind of happened into drugs. Well, it, it, how it all really started, you know, I dabbled a little bit in high school along with my friends and things like that. So, but what really like launched me into a full blown dependency was after a car accident in, in 2003, I was headed up to visit my parents and my mom and I have a really, really close relationship. And so I, I tried to spend as much time with her and with my dad as possible. And on my way up, I was in a car accident and, um, a couple of days later, you know, the pain of the whiplash from that car accident, you know, it started to, to surface. And one of my coworkers where I was working at, I was actually working at a local television station in Salt Lake city. And I uh, had a thriving career at the time. Um, I was top new business salesman. I was paving a way for um, a young, ambitious professional. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, it was all upside for me at that time. Right. But a coworker came to me and said, hey, man, I heard about your accident. Would you like to go to lunch? And we um, went to lunch. In that meeting, he asked me if I was seeing anyone for my pain management. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not. And at that moment he pulled out a bottle, a Costco size bottle of Oxycontin and he offered me a couple to help me with my pain. And, um, that decision of taking the Oxycontin, justifying it because I did have legitimate pain, you know, started something that I couldn't control. Well, it was when I was feeling the high of those pills, he asked me if I would like to see the doctor that he was seeing for his pain. And that opened up a, a pathway where um, I 
was involved in Utah's largest Oxycontin drug ring through that doctor. I didn't know at the time when I was going into that, that I would be ensnared in this uh, huge, massive network of underground Oxycontin distribution and illegal activity. But that's what just, I mean, for five months I went to that doctor and um, within a matter of five months, I lost probably 40, 45 pounds. And my family started to wonder what was going on with me. My behavior was erratic. Um, I began to push everybody away. I started to isolate and I made up excuses of why I was losing weight. I said I was training for ski season and mm-hmm. all sorts of uh, lies and isolation and manipulation. And, and uh, that's where it got really dark because eventually my family was pushed out of my life and my uh, ex-wife and I got divorced and the DEA caught up with me and I was served multiple charges including four felonies and you know I was looking at 90 years in the mm. state penitentiary and you know going from this successful career to being homeless on the streets of Salt Lake City in the winter with a laundry list of felonies and misdemeanors hanging over my head and not being able to stop using drugs because it advances, you know, went from Oxycontin to heroin to crack cocaine and alcohol, a lot of alcohol, um, anything I could get my hands on and I was ingesting because I just didn't want to feel anymore. I didn't want to feel. So so the pain that you tried to get away from brought on so much more pain. And I think that, you know, you you will hear hundreds and thousands of these addict stories, as we call them, Mm -hmm. and they're all the same in a a way. I mean, different details, different players and characters, but the story is the same. It gets worse, never better. And so the real message at the same time as this addiction problem, particularly the opiate problem in the state of Utah and across the, the world is that we're seeing the rates just escalate. But at the same time, there's a huge movement and power of good, of recovery and hope and people healing all over the place. And those stories aren't in the media. And so a lot of people don't see that alongside of the chaos and alongside of the negative statistics, there are all of these beautiful statistics that I'm trying to help families mm-hmm. hear about and learn about and see and get them hooked into these groups so that they can start to feel some hope. Well, that takes me to our next um, portion that I'd like to cover is the fact that bad things can happen to good people. So how do you let these people know that you're working with the families, the, the addicts themselves? How do you let them realize, to to breathe hope into them, to let them realize that they're not worthless, that they are still savable? How how do you do that? Well, honestly, I had to unlearn a lot of the approaches that I thought used to work. I used to pepper people with advice. I used to tell them exactly what they needed to do. And I think that that's great. But when you're in pain and when you are confused and full of fear, my approach now is just to sit with them in that pain and validate it and let them know that I'm hearing them and that I understand. And when the connection is made through that, then that's where influence happens. When there is true empathy and there is unconditional love and non-judgment and someone feels that connection, 
they will listen to every word that you say. And then I don't pepper them with advice at that point. I just give them one small thing they can start to do differently to love themselves, to honor themselves through the process of setting up some you know, boundaries and, and knowing where they end and where their addicted loved one begins. Because if they're going to help the right way, they've got to put on the oxygen mask first and they've got to get healthy and they've got to get into a place where they feel the strength that it's going to take to influence the right way because there's a long road ahead and there's no easy little magic pill, get sober quick fix. You know, it's, it's going to take time and I'll tell you right now, as a treatment provider and an owner, people do not recover in treatment. People don't recover in buildings. People recover in the context of relationships. If, if a good treatment center can provide the environment where healthy relationships can be fostered, then that makes for a great treatment experience. But I also went to four treatment experiences that were garbage. Right. And I got worse. Because there was no relationship, I just continued to perpetuate my same behaviors. Deceit, lies, continued use, secrecy, you know, and addiction thrives in secrecy. So to answer your question, it's just those small little things that I begin to incorporate into the loved one's lives. You know, and I start with the three go-tos, my three go-tos to start helping people the right way is number one that they've got to learn to get off the beach. And this was a, a particular piece of advice that changed my mother and father's lives. Because before my first treatment center, which is the first treatment center is where they learned about get off the beach. So that's the context. But before that time, I had free access anytime in their home. And I had the garage code. And when they were in town or out of town, I could go in there and I took advantage of all their things. I rummaged through their pill bottles. I even stole money from my, um, from my mother that she had stashed away. And I also sold my dad's rare coin collection that he had been keeping all of his life. Um, some heirlooms and some really valuable stuff, jewelry. And I would sell those for drugs. And so when they were told to get off the beach, their counselor expressed to them that it's like I'm out in the middle of the ocean and with every decision I'm making, I'm dropping a pebble into the water without a care in the world. And by the time those ripples arrive to the shore, the tidal wave, the tsunami is just pounding them over and over and over. And they were just standing on the beach. And so the first advice that they were given was get that blank off the beach. (laughs) And so they, the next question was, well, how, I mean, this, this sounds like exactly what we need to do, but how, because I was draining my parents' retirement. They were paying for rehabs. They were paying for counselors. They were paying for, you name it. Yeah. They they were, thought it was going to help you. They thought it was going to help me. They thought it was going to help me. And, and I can't say that it, didn't work at all. I mean, there were seeds that were planted through that and I felt their love, but either way, like they, they were being sucked and the life right out of them. And I knew that. And so how do you get off the beach? And I always start helping them see that the first thing they need to do is, is understand that strong fences make great neighbors. And so they started then to 
boundary their household. That was the first thing that they said they were going to do, which was, okay, we're changing the garage code. We're changing the locks. And he is no longer welcome in our home to rummage through our things anytime. And if he is allowed to come in, we're going to be home and he can only go in the common areas. He's not welcome to go through our bedroom. And they started setting boundaries within their physical home, which was a huge step for them. Huge. Mm -hmm. Because they knew I was going to get pissed and angry once they set that boundary. Because, you know, as addicted people, it's all about self and intimidation or manipulation and making them feel guilty for not loving me enough and letting Mm -hmm. me into their home. Well, um, once they saw that that was the game that I was playing they set up their very first fence. And I can say today we are great neighbors because they began to Mm -hmm. set up those fences. And luckily today I have carte blanche access to their not only one home, but their other vacation home. So it's really kind of cool that... um, Trust has been established. Yes. And trust was established early. It didn't take nine years for trust to be established. It took, um, you know, within the first year of seeing action, they started to trust me again tell us the story really quickly because we're winding down with the when you met with your father and he built those fences and he you had a story for him of why you needed some money and it was heart moving as a father how did he do that my dad and i have always had an interesting relationship and uh today it is one of the most valuable relationships in my life so i'll say that hi dad if you're listening i love you but uh, my dad was really angry with me during my addiction because I, like I said, I sucked the life right out of him and his retirement and he continued to try to help me and rescue me. And every time I had bills due, he would be my prey and I would go to him and he would help me and then I would never change. And so it just got to the point where he would, he was just resentful. He, he took, felt taken advantage of. Well, as part of setting up these fences, the, the other piece of advice I give families is to allow their addicted loved one his or her pain. Allow it because it's the pain that actually brings out the internal motivation to change. It's not the external motivators that are going to do the trick, but the external motivators can evoke internal motivation. And that's where real change occurs. And it has to be on the person's own volition. And so I went to pray on my dad one last time. Well, not one last time, but I was, uh, another time. It ended ended up being the last time. (laughs) Yes, it did. I, uh, went up to his house and, uh, to make a long story short, tried to manipulate him into giving me a hundred bucks. And, uh, my dad was firm in his resolve that he was not going to give me one more dime. And so when I knocked on his door and I, prepared this sob story, um, trying to do everything I could to uh, appeal to his fear and to draw upon his fear as a parent. And I said to him, and I had tears coming down my cheeks, and I said, Dad, I really need your help. There are some really bad people after me, and they are going to kill me if I don't pay them $100 by noon today. I am scared out of my mind will you please save my life and give me $100 to pay these bad people? And in that moment, I was expecting what he used to do, which was give me a little lecture, but then give me the money. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen. 
He said, Jason, you will never see another dime out of your mother or me. I hope that they don't hurt you too badly. Please get off my property. Have a nice day. And he closed the door right in my face. And that was the moment where his boundaries, him allowing me my natural consequences, allowing me my pain, I knew at that moment that I could never manipulate my dad for money again. It, It was like this spiritual, like, punch to my gut. Like, he's done. He's he loves me enough now yeah. that he's yeah. not going to continue to fuel my addiction. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's what a powerful story. I mean, that just brings me to tears just hearing it again. I just heard it a week ago, but that is amazing. Th- thank you. Oh, you are so welcome. I hope it helps the listeners because these are big, difficult steps. These are not easy because there are reactions. I reacted to that. Mm-hmm. I tried to make them feel guilty. I, I tried to put it on them and blame them, but you know what? They were liberated because no matter what happened to me, they finally began to feel some peace in their home. And they got to that space of surrender and acceptance that Jason might die this way, but we're going to be okay. We still got each other. He and my mom still had each other and they were willing to turn me over into the care of God and, and essentially wipe their hands of it. Because they couldn't go through the pain anymore that I was dragging them through. But that was the very action it took for me to begin the process of wanting to change. Wow. And then now you're, you're passing that on to others. Yeah. So what are your final words of wisdom or hope and inspiration that you could breathe into our audience as we wrap this, this call up? <clears throat> I have a real tender place in my heart for anyone who is up against the wrath of addiction. I could give hopeful words. I could give, um, you know, encouraging words and motivational words. What I want people to know is that there are actual real tools that they can grab and start picking up today. And they can start to apply today that will free them. And, um, you know, what I'm trying to do is provide as many free resources to people as possible through my websites, um, coomscommunications.com. I, um, people can subscribe and have access to articles that I've written um, through blog, blogs, and I have a host of new videos coming out That's where I'm just... I was going to say, you have some great videos that you have that, that lift and inspire and breathe hope. Yeah. So, so if people will just connect with me, you know, and, and, and how subscribe. do they connect with you? How do they find you? Well, right now it would be through coomscommunications.com and, uh, Coombs is C O O M B S communications, plural, uh, .com. And, uh, they can subscribe there. And then, you know, at, at that point I'll be rolling out a lot of cool products coming up, um, technology based products, uh, books, um, more podcast interviews and I can keep the audience updated on free content that, uh, will really help them. That's wonderful. And you have, uh, your book unhooked is coming out. How soon? Uh, it's in the hands of some publishers now. And so we're just going through the negotiation process. So it's super exciting. So timeline, my hope is that by, uh, the end of spring, we'll have something ready to roll. 
Good deal. Oh, All right, awesome. so hopefully our listeners can look for that. And, and reach out to us if you'd like to get in contact with Jason. We can uh, get you with him as well. Yeah, his contact info will be listed in the show notes. So thank you so much, Jason. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, let's do this again sometime. This is fun. Oh, it's been absolutely. too long. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life in 22 Minutes. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends about us. And please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review. Your review will help us to broaden our audience. Until next time, don't wait for things to be perfect. Get out there and live life with courage, humor, and a whole lot of love.